0: Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. Today we are in Second Chronicles, uh, making a journey through the Bible. Three years, three years through the Bible. We're about half, about halfway. In that, um, approximately, and uh, today we're in Second Chronicles chapter 36. Uh, as well, we're going to take a, a real quick dip into the book of Lamentations. But I'd like to start with uh, s- some reading, scripture reading, and I'd like actually like for us to start uh, in chapter 35, Second Chronicles 35, and we'll pick up there, and then we'll. We'll get uh, eventually. We get into chapter thirty-six. The rustling of pages, clicking of your fingers, whatever it takes to get to Second Chronicles. That's in the Old Testament. Um, you don't need to stand. Uh, this morning for this but I would invite you to bow uh, in prayer with me if you would please. Thank you Lord for this tremendous group of people here this morning and, and the privilege that, uh, that Curtis mentioned. The privilege of being part of, of a church family and um, we thank you as well for those who may be visiting this morning and we just pray that you would bless us all uh, as we gather here in your name to fellowship together and to worship you and to look to you And uh, now as we turn our attention squarely to your word, we pray that you would teach us what you would have us to know today. We thank you, Lord, that you have not left us to ourselves, that you have not left left us to to, uh, wander and to wonder endlessly about what is true and what is real and what is good. You have shown us uh, in your word and in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, what is true and what is good and what is perfect. Um, Lord, today we just ask that you would be our teacher and that the Holy Spirit, your spirit, would uh, lead us in your word and open up the eyes of our understanding that um, we might receive from you what you have for us this, uh, this day. And we are uh, so grateful, Lord, for your word today. Uh, speak uh, to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to... Start for for us to start in actually in uh, verse twenty four of Second Chronicles, thirty five. We'll read uh, verses twenty four through twenty seven. It says, "So his servants took him out of the chariot, and carried him in his second chariot, and brought him to Jerusalem." Speaking of whom, Josiah, and he died and was buried in the tombs of his fathers. And all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Jeremiah also uttered a lament for Josiah. And all the singing men and singing women have spoken of Josiah in their laments to this day. They made these a rule in Israel. Behold, they are written in the laments. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and his good deeds, according to what is written in the law of the Lord and his acts, first and last, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. Josiah was a good king. He was a very good king. He was one of the best kings that ever sat on the throne of David. He was also the last good king that Judah had. And when he died, it was a very sad time. Jeremiah the prophet wrote a lament. There's a lot of sad times in the Bible. Just as there are sad times in our lives. Uh, A lament is a sad song. And there's a number of them in in Scripture, Uh, a great number, in fact. And many of the Psalms in the book of Psalms are Psalms of Lament. And the text here that we're reading says that there were a lot of other laments written about Josiah, and they had a book called Laments, and they put those songs into this, this book. And we don't have uh, that book, uh, but we have lots of laments, scriptural laments. Now, the Bible calls us uh, to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. Paul said that in, uh, I think it's Romans chapter 13, maybe. And uh, I'm, I'm often caused to think about that. That when someone around us is sad, and and there's always somebody around us that that is weeping. If you don't see people around you weeping, you're not paying attention. There's always things happening that would cause us to weep. And the Bible calls us to weep with those who weep. That we can't go through our lives just kind of oblivious in some kind of happy state of denial that there are people hurting around us. We're called to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice. I'm thankful for that part. And life in this world is kind of a mixture, isn't it? There are things to rejoice about and there's things to weep about. And we talked a little bit about that a couple weeks ago when we were in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah. You might have had this experience. You'll go to a family funeral, and next thing you know, you're at a wedding, or a baby is born, and you'll find yourself weeping and rejoicing almost simultaneously. There is a book of Lamentations written by Jeremiah that we do have, and we're going to spend a few moments in that book this morning. Um... Is not the book that's mentioned here in this in this passage, but the book of uh, Lamentations appears to have been written by Jeremiah after the fall of Jerusalem, which is our topic today, or at least it's the historical event that the message is set against today. And I want to go uh, just really briefly talk to the book of Lamentations. It's kind of a, a commercial break from Second uh, Chronicles 36 maybe, but... And uh, the narrative there, but I, it fits squarely within the historical context of what we're discussing. And uh, Jeremiah is the author, as, as I mentioned. And this passage that uh, we're reading here, Second Chronicles, Jeremiah's name comes up three different times, so he was a significant prophet at this time in biblical history. The first thing I want you to, to notice is you go into the book of Lamentations as we. Uh, I hope that you've uh, read it, because it was on the prescribed reading list for the week. Um, uh, One of the first things that stood to me was how, as Jeremiah uh, describes his situation, uh, it mirrors the situation of his surroundings in the city of Jerusalem. Um, And it starts in chapter... Um, 1 verse 18, we won't go there, but in chapter 1 verse 18 of Lamentations, he's describing the desolation that he sees around him in the, in the city and in, in his world, if you will, and he starts adopting personal pronouns. So he's talking about the suffering that he sees and the desolation that he sees around him. He starts talking about it in terms of his own, his own life. And as we pick up in chapter 3, if you just flip over to chapter 3, verse 1, uh, it says, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. You know, the Bible says that Christians aren't appointed to the wrath of God. But that doesn't mean that we are entirely spared from all of God's uh, wrath. Uh, and the reason I say that is because we live in a world that is being judged by God. And, and sometimes we, uh, we're touched by those things. And um, it says in verse 2, He has driven and, and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. Verse 5 says, He has besieged and enveloped me. The city of Jerusalem, you would call, was besieged uh, for a prolonged period of time before it finally fell. Verse 7 says, he's walled me about. Verse 11 says, I, he turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. Kind of reminds you of reading the book of Job, doesn't it? It reads uh, similarly. Uh, verse 14 says, I've become the laughingstock of all peoples. Verse 17, it says, my soul is bereft of peace. He's describing his situation, and, and, and he's just just telling it honestly like it is. He's not, he's not sugarcoating it with, with Christian ease. He's saying it exactly what he's experiencing. He says, I have forgotten what happiness is. Verse 17, I've forgotten what happiness is. Now, if you're here and things are going pretty good in your life, you might not be able to identify with that, but you need to try. Because I can tell you two things. Number one, I can tell you that somebody sitting here today, that is how their life right now. And the other thing I can tell you is that if you live uh, very long in this world, you too will reach points in your life where you will feel like this you will not be spared from it. Verse 18, so I say, my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. His hope has perished. He says, "I've, I've, I've lost my hope. This is pretty sobering stuff for a prophet of the Lord to say. Verse nineteen, and this we're not done reading yet, and this is important. Verse nineteen through twenty-four. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. Wormwood was a bitter uh, herb; gall is a bitter drink. And so the idea there is there's bitterness. This is my experience is 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 is, is Is bitter. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Wait a minute. He just said that his hope had gone. Let's read on. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. You starting to recognize this? They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And then verse 24, look closely at this. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. You know, there are a lot of good things that God gives us in our lives. Just like there were a lot of good things that God gave to Israel. The land was good. The temple was good. The power was good. The wealth was good. the treasures that they had were all good things that God gave them. But when you start to hope in those things, that's a vain hope. Jeremiah said he's lost all his hope except the hope that he had in Him, therefore, I will hope in Him. I remember reading a story one time about a a man who was in the hospital and he had been diagnosed with a a very serious condition. and And uh, on this particular day, the doctor specialist came to see him, and he had a young intern with him. and As he talked with the man there in his hospital bed, he he said, "Ryan." there's nothing more we can do for you. You only have a matter of weeks. Well, as he left the room and headed down the hall, the intern caught up to him and he said, Doctor, why would you do that? How could could you do that? You, You took all that man's hope away from him. And the seasoned doctor paused and then said this. He said, Well, then maybe it's time he got a new hope. How about you? You may not be facing a prognosis of cancer, but the truth is that all of our days here are numbered. Where's your hope? Take a look at verse 25, Lamentations 3.25, and then we'll go to back to 2 Chronicles. The Lord is good. That's what we just sang, right? That's what we just sang. The Lord is good. The goodness of God. How, the Lord is good to those who what? Who wait for him. To the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. There are a few things that we could and should take note of in this book of Lamentations that Jeremiah wrote. We're going to be talking today about waiting on the Lord. Um, and that is a message coming out of, of these, these verses. I, I picked the, chose the title this morning of the message time as, as uh, uh, When Your Dreams Die, but I almost thought about calling it Waiting on the Lord. That's really our subject this morning. But something else I want to point out while, before we uh, leave the book of Lamentations, I want to point out the the, the, ob- the obvious fact that the prophet Jeremiah suffered right along with the people, right through to the very end. Even when the remnant that the uh, Babylonians left in Jerusalem uh, packed up and headed for Egypt against the the commandments of God and against the will of God. They picked old Jeremiah up and they carted him against his will to Egypt. He suffered with them right through to the end. And I want to say to you today that you and I will suffer with this world. This world is a place under judgment. The world is a place that is under the judgment of God. Do you, do you know that? That the world is under God's judgment? That God is judging this world? It's not Judgment is not just something that's coming someday. God is judging this world right now, today. And you and I will, will not be spared from that. We will be spared from some things in this world. But a lot of the time, a great lot of the time, we'll end up suffering right along with the world. Why is that? Well, there's a couple of reasons, I think, that that come to my mind from Scripture. One is, is because we simply are living in this world, and therefore we're subjected to the environment and to the dynamics that are at play in this world. We are not spared from those things. But there's another reason. And the other reason is because we cannot speak hope to a suffering world if we're not able to identify with it. You can't. You can't walk up to somebody that's 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 experiencing uh, catastrophic things in their lives, and 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 if you've never experienced anything like that at all, what how, what do you have to say to that person to, in terms of really identifying with them and say you know we say stupid things, we say things like I know how you feel, right, which is a really dumb thing to say. Think about this because. It is important that if we are going to take the gospel to the world, we need need to be able to speak the language of, of the world. If we live our lives untouched by calamity, we have no credibility whatsoever. Who do you like to listen to? When do your ears pick up? I'll tell you when my ears pick up. When somebody speaks out of intense loss and suffering, they have my attention, especially when they have hope. Our suffering in this world is is a reality because we live in a fallen world, in a broken world, and we suffer along with everyone else. But it's more than that. To take the gospel to the world, we need to be able to speak the language of the world. If we live lives untouched by life's calamities, we have no platform from which to speak. I want to go back to 2 Chronicles, and we'll pick up on some of these things but let's just let's go and let's read through second chronicles thirty six this is a dark passage this is this is like you know if you pick the parts of the Bible that you just soon not read this would be one of them you know it's just really sad it's a sad it's sad right we like the happily ever after stories today is not a happily ever after story it's It's really hard to actually read. It says in verses 1 through 8, The people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in his father's place in Jerusalem. And Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. And then the king of Egypt deposed him in Jerusalem and laid on the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent uh, of gold. And the king of Egypt made Eliakim his brother, king over Judah and Jerusalem, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. Now Necho, was the pharaoh of Egypt, took Jehoahaz, his brother, and carried him to Egypt. And Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Against him came up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and bound him in chains to take him to, take him to Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar also carried part of the vessels of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his palace in Babylon. Now, the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and the abominations that he did and what was found against him, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. And Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. As we reach this place in the biblical narrative, um, it's like the end of the story. And we have to be careful that we don't read this as a... Uh, with the idea that this catastrophic event that's about to take place is an isolated event. Uh, It's a good thing that we've been reading along, that that we're not just jumping in the middle of the Bible and trying to understand what's going on, because you really need all of the backstory to understand what's going on here in this passage. The fall of Judah and Jerusalem and the decimation of Israel in general is not some punctual event in history. It's not sudden. It's anticipated. It's expected. It's understandable. Rather than these things, uh, rather than being sudden or punctual, these things took place over an extended period of time. They happened in waves. Uh, You can even go back to Rehoboam. Who's Rehoboam? Son of Solomon. So go back to the heyday. Go back to the glory days. Go back to the golden days when Solomon uh, made silver almost worthless. There was so much wealth, so much power, so much uh, success. And one of the things that Solomon did was he made 500 golden shields and he hung them. You can read about it in 1 Kings chapter 10. He hung them in the great hall of the forest of Lebanon, uh, which is a building in Jerusalem called the forest of Lebanon that he built, and he hung these golden shields there uh, as a a symbol. And there were so many symbols, symbols of success, symbols of prosperity, symbols of happiness. But in chapter 14 of 1 Kings 14, it says, in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Solomon's son, uh, Shishak, king of Egypt came up against Jerusalem and he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away all the shields of gold that Solomon had made. And King Rehoboam made in their place shields of bronze and committed them to the hands of the officers of the guards who kept the doors of the king's house. And as often as the king went into the house of the Lord, the guards carried them and brought them back to the guard room. They moved them back and forth, back and forth so that nobody would take them. And you see here where you have these symbols of glory replaced with symbols <laughs> of decline and decay. And it's like we're still we're still we're still doing good, aren't we? We're still great. Is everything still still uh still wonderful, right? Well no, not exactly. And there's this decline that's happening and it's it's circular and it's um it's spiraling things. As things spiral down, where you have, you know, disobedience and and, and uh, rebellion against God and and, uh, and judgment. It was it was judgment. God used the enemies of the people, People of the land to judge, to judge the nation. Even the captivity happened over periods of time in multiple waves. You know, and we see this in the passages that we're reading here today. There's like failure, loss, military loss, breakdown as God judges the people. And he'd been doing this right along. Think about the droughts, all the droughts we've read about. Remember Elijah and Elisha? And uh, the enemies, and the even the wild animals, all, all kinds of things as God employs various ongoing attempts to turn people around. Because God's judgment is intended as a corrective. That's important to note. 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 9 and 10 says, Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months and ten days in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And in the spring of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar sent and brought him to Babylon with the precious vessels of the house of the Lord and made his brother Zedekiah king over Judah and Jerusalem. In reference there to the, the precious vessels things precious things precious vessels you know sometimes it's hard for us to appreciate the fact that the world's actually in decline we we like to think that the world is actually progressing the world certainly likes to think it's progressing i mean we're not we're not archaic like our grandfathers were or great grandfathers you know we're we're progressive you know, we're, we're evolving, you know, things are get, getting better, you know. We, we, just think of what we know now that we didn't know 100 years ago, you know. There's no denying it. Like, accumulated knowledge in our world today is, is phenomenal, right? So I guess you could say we're making some really serious progress. The only problem is that that doesn't correlate with our morality, does it? And therein lies the problem. Uh, verse 11 to 14. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God, He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. And all the officers and the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. Zedekiah was the last king. The last king of Judah. Israel had already fallen. The northern kingdom had already fallen. Um, and Zedekiah, uh, his reign was a continuation of the stiff-necked, hard-hearted rebellion against God. And therefore, things had become more evil. There was more judgment, more of the same, only worse. So this is clearly a story of judgment. But it's not a story of judgment without mercy. And if you are looking for God's mercy within this story of judgment, take a look at the next verse, verse 15, 2 Chronicles 36:15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. This was not something sudden, this happened over hundreds of years as there were these waves and waves of, of uh, immorality and, and evil and rebellion and stiff-necked pride and waves of judgment and God's messengers, God's word, God's message to the people over and over again. He sent the messengers, and those messengers suffered. When you get to the New Testament, there's a lot of, Jesus talks about this, a lot. How God sent messenger after messenger, prophet after prophet, and what did they do? Jesus said, oh Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets. Um, but God's mercy is shown in that. His, his patience is shown in that. But, verse 16 says, but they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, until there was no remedy. No remedy. This is to say that when the only remedy is rejected, there remains no remedy that might seem like a painfully obvious statement to make but just take a moment and think about that just for a moment when the only remedy is rejected there remains no remedy this is something that jesus talked a lot about too because he said things like this, he said to the Pharisees and, and the scribes and the, and the Sadducees and the leaders of the people, people of Israel, he said, he said, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. In the book of Acts it says there is not, there is uh, salvation in no other name, for there is no other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. You can, you can reject the, the salvation that God offers, you can reject Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. But let me ask you this morning, what's your answer? If you choose to reject the salvation that God offers through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the very center center of the message of the Bible, then where does that leave you? What do you have? What kind of hope do you have? Because it seems to me that I, all around me, I hear people just trashing the Bible or trashing Christianity and just, just rejecting the message of the Bible out of hand without a whole lot of consideration sometimes. And I, and I, but I don't hear anybody suggesting anything else that really gives any kind of real hope. When you've rejected the only remedy, there, there are no, no there no remains, there remains. no remedy. Second Chronicles chapter 36, 17 to twenty one says: Therefore, he brought up against the king of the Ch- of the Chaldeans, up against them, the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men. This is now. This is where. Okay, uh, use your imagination. Um, here. God gave you one, so you would use it. Use your imagination as we read together here because most of us have never experienced anything like this right here. Yet, anyway. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young men or virgin or old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, all the treasures of the king and of his princes, and all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God. And they broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Burned all the all the palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious vessels. And he took into exile the establishment, or sorry, into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him, and to his sons, until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the, hand, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. One of the comments that gets repeated in Scripture throughout the days leading up to this time of desolation, devastation and desolation, is the comment uh, and Isaiah talks about this? How the people filled the land with idols. The land was filled with idols. People's lives were filled with idols. All, what were all those idols? Well, obviously, there's the, the idols that we think of in terms of, you know, the the, the 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 statues that they made and the Asherah poles and all of that. But you know, everything in the land of Israel had become an idol. That's why God took it all away. It's not just bad things that become idols. Good things become idols. God had given them so many good things. You think back, the things that they gloried in, the, the land. Nothing was more precious to these people than the land that God had given them. The temple. People could travel to, just to see it. The, the the palaces, the the success, the, the the wealth, the treasures. You notice treasures are mentioned over and over here again. And God took it all away. He removed it all. He wiped it clean. They enjoyed all those good things that God had given, given them, but they didn't love God. What about us? Do we worship God, or do we simply like all the good things that God can give us? Because God has blessed us without measure, but good things can become idols when we love the good things instead of loving the God who provides them. This is a sobering question for us. And it's one we need to ask ourselves. Do I love God or do I just love what God gives? What am I really treasuring? Jesus said this. He said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It's an important uh, question. It is also important to recognize that God's wiping of the plate of Jerusalem was not a final act of condemnation, but rather an act of judgment to correct his people. And this arises in the very final words of 2 Chronicles 36, verses 22 and 23. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Let him go up. And this is where the books of Kings and Chronicles come to a close. But they end with this expectation, the expectation of a return. So the end is not the end. It alludes to a day when a chastened nation would rise once again to reclaim the promises of God. And in uh, the the days ahead for you and I, as we study God's word together, we're going to be... be, um, uh, next week, uh, Josh is preaching from Ezekiel, who is a prophet of the exile. Uh, then we're going to be in the book of Daniel. The 70 years that, that um, is spoken of here uh, before the return of the people is significant in the book of Daniel, who was also a prophet of the exile. And then we'll be moving into Ezra and Nehemiah, and we'll be learning about this decree Of Cyrus. Jeremiah had prophesied about Cyrus. Named him by name. Isaiah the prophet named Cyrus by name 150 years before Cyrus even took the throne of Persia. Think about that. So what about you and I and the judgment of God? I want you to take a look at this passage with me. We'll put it on the screens. First Corinthians eleven, thirty-one and thirty-two. Uh, no, sorry, uh, Don. First uh, Corinthians. I'll give you a second there. First Corinthians uh, eleven, thirty-one and thirty-two. You might be sitting here today thinking, "Well, yeah, but this is all Old Testament stuff, and we're we're in the New Testament, and and the, and the New Testament says there's now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, and that's exactly true. That's Scripture, right? But here's something for you to consider: there is a difference between condemnation and judgment. I don't know if you've thought this through or not, but there is a difference between condemnation and judgment. Look at this. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. And in verse thirty-two says, but when we are judged by the Lord, this is, this is New Testament, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be what? Condemned. See, there's a corrective nature to God's judgment. If you go to Hebrews chapter 12, uh, you'll see there that uh, God's uh, judgment there is called discipline. It's like with your kids, isn't it? You know, and he says this in, in, in Hebrews chapter 12. He says this. He says, nobody likes correction. Nobody likes to be disciplined. But there's a fruit in being disciplined it's correction. And, you know, you, when you discipline your, your kids, they, they, don't, they hate it. They don't like it. So why do you do it? You do it for their good, right? And so in our, in our lives, you know, some, sometimes the things that happen in our lives feel so final. You know, when we look at at the passages that we're we're in here in Second Chronicles, you know, but also when we look at the tragedies and the calamities of our own lives, the smashed dreams, they can feel very, very final. And when you look at your life in and you see destruction, you see what looks like complete and utter destruction, it's hard sometimes not to think of it as something that's final. But God says it's not final. Even, you know, the epitome of disappointment. What's, What's the epitome of disappointment? I would say it probably would be death, wouldn't it? The loss of a loved one. That's got to be the biggest disappointment we face. And yet, what does the scripture say? Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, grave, where is your sting? Where is that in the Bible? 1 Corinthians 15. Did you know it's also in Hosea? Paul was quoting the prophet Hosea. So what do you do? This is what I want to spend the last few minutes talking with you about this morning. What do you do when devastation comes? What do you do with not just those little disappointments that we all learn to live with, but the things that just we find that decimate us? Have you ever noticed what, what real Christians do when they go through times of, of devastation? I don't mean those little things. I mean, I mean the big disastrous types. The types when the, the world stands back and says, why don't you just curse God and die? Those types. And they say, I, I, I'm not going to do that. What what do they do? What do do real Christians do? What I've observed in my life as I've watched real Christians go through times of real desperation and devastation is they learn to wait on God. And this theme of waiting on God is a dominant biblical theme. You'll find it in all the prophets. You find it in the Psalms. It's literally everywhere. You, you we memorize those passages. Why do we memorize them? Because we know we're going to need them. Isaiah 40 those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Psalm 27, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And there are many, many, many passages... you can can go to any of the prophets and and all through the Psalms and all through scripture and you can see this over and over again earlier today we we read from Lamentations chapter 3 verse 25 the Lord is good to those who wait for him to the soul who seeks him it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord As Christians, we need to be realists. Suffering is real. Hardship is real. Disappointment is real. But nothing is more real than the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is our ultimate reality. If the gospel does not speak to us in the very worst times of our lives, then does it really speak at all? If the gospel doesn't apply when tragedy and calamity comes, then is it relevant at any time? If the message that we are given to take to the world, the message of Christ and the hope we have in him, If it isn't for all of us, then is it for any? Some of the suffering in this life will happen simply because we live in a fallen world, in a broken world, in a sinful world. And some of the suffering we experience in this life will come because of our own sin and disobedience. And some of the suffering we experience in this world will come because we are on mission With a message of hope to a lost and dying world. But in all those cases, and in any of those cases, all of our suffering has meaning and it has a purpose. We are entering a, a very fascinating time, not just in history in 2020 but a fascinating time of history in the bible as we enter a period of time that is known as the times of the exile the people are in exile they're not in the land they're not they don't have the temple all the treasures are gone All they have is the Lord, who is their hope. It's a very interesting time because, as I mentioned to you back a few weeks ago, the apostles in the New Testament pick up the language of the exile. And they speak to Christians in the church using the language of exile, and they even refer to us as strangers and pilgrims in this world. There is a sense in which exile is the, is the Christian experience, because in the words of the old song, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue, right? You know that old song? The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. That is our experience. And it's interesting. I find it's fascinating because the, um, the prophets speak to this too. Jeremiah, I'll read one more scripture for you, and I don't have, I'm not going to put it on the screen. I'm just going to read it. But let's, listen to these words from Jeremiah. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give you daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. In other words, dwell, live. You know the old saying, life goes on. Even after the loss of all of that, Life goes on, but, verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. And I like that. I like it a lot. What are we doing while we wait? This is important. God says to us, you need to wait on the Lord. But what do you do while you wait? And that's what Jeremiah is saying here. He says, Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. Do good, the New Testament apostles will say. Do good. Honor the king. Reach out with the precious gospel of Jesus. Love the people. And pray to the Lord on his behalf. Pray for people, pray for this world. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Put your hope in the Lord, not in, the, the vain, in vain dreams, but in real hope. Why not you stand with me uh, and pray with me, if you would. It can be a little hard to understand sometimes, even though we understand that the people, you know, they sinned and they rebelled against God, and it was continuous, and it was over and over and over and over again until there was no remedy. It says it's still hard for us to understand how could God allow this to happen How could God allow this to happen? God, why? God has a purpose. God had a purpose in all of it. And I want to say to you today, God has a purpose for the devastation that he allows to come into your life. As hard as it is for us to understand that, and as hard as it is for us to see that, God has a purpose in it. And his purpose is, is that we would get our eyes off of the things of this world. The New Testament's going to talk about this a lot. Jesus is going to talk about this all the time. Get your eyes off of the treasures of this world and realize that those are vain dreams. Oh, I wish I had this. Or, I want to do that. Those are vain dreams. They can be good things. They can be good things. But when they become the things that we hope in, when they become the things that we love, when they become the idols of our hearts, then our affections are in the wrong place. And we need to lift up our eyes and get our eyes on the, the only real hope that we have, and that's Jesus. Do you have that hope today? Do you have that hope in your heart? The kind of hope that will take you through Stuff that, and people will go, I don't know how they do that. I don't know if I could do that. Will you pray with me? Lord, I ask for all of us here today, Lord that you would help us to lift our eyes. I know that, Lord, that we've got it pretty good here most of the time. But I also know that there's a lot of pain and a lot of loss in our lives and the people around us here in this room, Lord. There's people right here in this room that have that have lost the dearest things on earth to them. Lord, help us Help us, Lord, that our affections might be turned heavenward, that we might love you and not the world. Even the good things that you allow us to have and the things we enjoy here, Lord, help them not to become idols of our hearts, but help, them, help us, Lord, that the goodness of God might lead us to repentance and that we would see that, that you are our hope and you are the only sure hope that we have that we would love you with all our hearts and with all our souls and with all our minds and with all our strengths, our strength and that we would serve you in this world and that we would reach out and we would love the people around us and that we would pray for the world around us, that we would be on mission for you taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to this lost world and the only hope that people have, the only hope, there is the only remedy, the only way that people's sins can be forgiven and that they can have assurance of a home in heaven. Help us, Lord. We need your help. We ask you to revive our hearts, stir our hearts to rise up and to live for you in these days in this world. We pray that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen.